Well, we're back to Luke. So turn to chapter six of Luke after taking our little break there for a family series and the holidays and all those other things you have to do at that time of year. We're back to Luke chapter six. And as you're finding that chapter, I want to ask you some questions that will kind of get you into the frame of mind so that you will receive. Um, I don't know what happens, but whenever you watch a football game and they flip a, a coin, the guy who is asking, the, he always has an accent. Have you noticed that? Will you receive? I mean, he always says that. I don't know. I, I guess it's one of the requirements. But anyways, uh, I want to see if you will receive things a little better. But let me ask you some questions. Let me just, uh, as I ask these questions, it just, you just pretend like they're true and uh, I kind of uh, experience uh, opinions that might rise to the surface, maybe some feelings. What if we only had choir once a month? That'd be okay with you? What if we only had one song that we sang every Sunday? Yeah, which one? Someone said, what if we only used the organ or the piano or just you know, one instrument? Or maybe we only sang one song a cappella every week. What if the elders decide to just get rid of Sunday school class? Hmm. What if they did, decided it was the parents' responsibility to train their children and so they discontinued the youth group, any youth Bible studies and youth meetings? What if it was determined that since husbands are the head of the home and they need to train their wives that really all women's ministry are superfluous and we're going to banish all of them also? What if children regardless of their age were required to sit with the parents during the sermon time and since there would be only one song we'd increase the sermon length to an hour and 45 minutes that sounds good what if the elders really they thought you know we could save quite a bit of money here why don't we just fire all the paid pastors and staff and just tell the congregation that they needed to step up to the plate and the elders could take turns on a rotating basis to preach their hour and 45 minute sermons. Now, I am confident that if we did that, most of you would be very bothered to say the least. I am confident that most of you would be in a rage and you would go to one of the elders and go, what are you doing? What are you doing? I disagree with these things. And the elder would look at you and say, you know, we've studied these things. And do you realize that the word of God commands none of them? Hmm. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? Because then all of a sudden you'd be realizing, oh, well, you mean it doesn't? Mm -mm. No, those are just traditions that we have, that uh, we enjoy, and we like. But God's word doesn't command those things. And I am sure many people, if not most people, would leave. There would maybe be a few who would stay, you know, the elders, because they have to preach. (laughs) And many of those people who would leave would be people who don't regularly read their Bibles, which is commanded. People who don't regularly pray, which is commanded. People who don't regularly serve in church, which is commandment commanded people who don't regularly give sacrificially which is commandment and they would leave because their traditions weren't being met now you think about those things and let me remind you of where we are in luke this morning we return to luke and in the book of luke luke is emphasizing jesus 
the son of man. That is his big theme. In the first two chapters, Luke tells us about the conception and birth of Jesus and John the Baptist. Then when you get to chapter three, we have the ministry of John the Baptist and the uh, baptism uh, of Jesus along with his genealogy. Then in chapter four, we have the temptation of Christ and Christ starts his ministry up and he starts healing people and teaching, goes to his hometown. They try and kill him. He's starting to get famous. In chapter 5, he really starts pouring it on. He starts calling his disciples, doing lots and lots of miracles. The crowds are getting so huge that he has to stop outside of town so that the sheer number of bodies don't gridlock the town and cause its commerce to come to a grinding halt. Some have estimated maybe 10, 15,000 people are just mobbing him and just following him around, wanting to hear him teach, hoping to get healed, and just watching the novelty of this guy named Jesus. And during this time, Jesus has offended the Jewish leaders. He has exposed them. He has rebuked them and said things that really made them angry, like, I am the Messiah. And so they are doing everything they can to try and discredit him, disqualify him, and turn the people away from him because they're kind of jealous. He's getting a lot of attention. They're not getting a lot of attention. And so when we come to Luke 6, Luke now is trying to explain to us some more examples of where Jesus received opposition. And one of the places that we will counter even later in Luke, where he received oppositions, is in the matter of keeping the Sabbath. And so in this chapter, what Luke does is he takes two separate instances about the Sabbath, and he combines them together into one place and makes some statements that... Uh, we're going to be looking at. So if you have your Bible, look at Luke 6, chap, or verse 1 of uh, chapter 6 there, and follow along as I read down through verse 11. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering, uh, answering them said, have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which it is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests alone and gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or harm on the Sabbath to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. So here we are, here we are. And from this section of Luke, I want to show you three important ministry lessons, which every Christian needs to know. And I'm telling you, these are important lessons to learn because these lessons, if learned by other people, would have prevented a lot of conflict in the church and church splits. These are big lessons to learn. Now, before we look at the text, I want to explain a few things. In our text, Luke gives two separate examples of the Sabbath. After each example, he gives, he records his reasoning or justification and kind of an illustration or a reference to something they would be familiar with. In between the two examples and illustrations, there is a single line that is really the center focus 
of the whole section. And that is the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the obvious question here that we need to answer before we move on is this discussion about the Sabbath. You know, we don't keep the Sabbath. We don't worship on Saturday. We don't we aren't Jews who keep the Jewish Sabbath. Now, some people have said, well, the Sabbath has actually been transferred to Sunday, but the Bible never says the Sabbath is now transferred to Sunday. And so the obvious question is, why don't we keep the Sabbath? And that is what I want to address right now. In one respect, we don't keep the Sabbath because the New Testament teaches that The Sabbath is no longer binding on Christians. But in another sense, it teaches that all true believers keep the Sabbath. You think, well, how can that be? Let me explain. First of all, you need to know a little bit about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was uh, first, uh, I don't know, set apart as holy when God created. He created everything in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested and he consecrated that seventh day and he made it holy. That is, he set it apart from the other six days as a special day. That's what holy means, to be set apart. So he kind of said, this day's kind of special because this is when I was creating and now I've stopped. That became the pattern of the seven-day work week. And it became the pattern of what would become known as the fourth commandment in Exodus 20 and, and uh, Deuteronomy 5. Um, there was regulations about thou shall keep holy the Sabbath day. And in those commands, the Sabbath is a day of rest where we are to cease for our normal labors that we engage in to provide for ourselves and make a living. Secondly, it was patterned after creation, as we just mentioned. Thirdly, it is to be kept holy, which means it is to be set apart or devoted to the Lord. And that is further elaborated as resting. You are to rest, your children are to rest, your servants are to rest, and even your animals are to rest. By New Testament times, the Jews had added to the very simple Sabbath commands a very large list, 39 principal works which could not be performed on the Sabbath. And some of these even had subcategories. So they really beefed it up. What they did is, is they took the commandments and added to them further regulations. They did not think that God was specific enough in saying what could and couldn't be done. And so they made it more specific what could and could not be done on the Sabbath. They attached man-made traditions. Traditions like choirs, youth groups, Sunday schools, what instruments are godly and which are not, how long the sermon should be, etc. Now, the big question many people have is, why don't we keep the seventh day, the Sabbath day, holy as the fourth commandment states? Well, there are several reasons. For instance, in Romans 14.5, where Paul is talking about our liberties in Christ, he says this. He says, one person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Well, what that means is, is you can worship on Tuesday and you can worship on Thursday and you can worship on Friday. And I can worship on Saturday and you can worship on Sunday. Each man can be fully convinced in his own mind. That's what it means. There's another guy who regards every day equally. And that's fine too. In Galatians 4, 9 through 11, Paul rebukes the Galatians because they had fallen back into thinking that observing the, the days required in the law of Moses would somehow make them right before God. And he said... But now that you have come to know God or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. The whole point is, is that observing certain days doesn't make you holy or right before God. 
Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Paul speaks to the Colossians about the very same thing. Therefore, he says, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or respect to festival or new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So these texts teach that as Christians, we don't need to observe the Jewish Sabbath, the seventh day Saturday and set it aside and not work and worship on that day. The day that we worship is a matter of personal conviction. The day that we worship is not something that saves us or makes us right before God. The day that we worship is not something to judge each other about. That's what the New Testament teaches. However, the scriptures do say we keep this Sabbath rest. We don't have time to go into it, but if you look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, there's a whole section from 3, 7 all the way down to 4, 12, which talks about the Sabbath rest. And in this section, what is interesting is, is the author of Hebrews is crying out to these people who haven't received Christ, these kind of fence sitters in the church, calling them to commit and believe in Jesus Christ. And when he does this, he reminds them that Israel was supposed to enter the promised land. As they left Egypt, but they did not enter because of disbelief. Then Joshua led them into the land, but they did not enter the rest that God wanted them to enter because of unbelief. Then he says, David spoke of a day after that, which people were to enter if they would hear God's voice and they believe. And then he says this key statement in chapter four, verse three of Hebrews. He says, we who have believed in Jesus Christ, the gospel have entered permanently into the Sabbath rest. That is why the other day when I went to Sunday school class and the teacher asked, how many of you keep the Sabbath? I I raised my hand and the teacher said, why did you do that? I said, because I do. Because those who believe in Jesus Christ permanently enter into the Sabbath rest, which God intends for his people to enter. That's what the author of Hebrews says. So, yes, you have permanently, not just one day, not just two days, but every day of the week, every month of the year, for all eternity from now on. If you know Jesus, you are fixed in the state of enjoying that Sabbath rest set aside for the people of God, which is entered through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, most Christians gather together for corporate worship on Sunday like we're doing right now. Why is that? Well, the reason is, is that in the early church, the church would like to assemble on Sunday to celebrate the Lord's resurrection from the dead. There's a couple examples in Acts 20, verse 7 and 1 Corinthians 16, 2 that tells us this. Not only that, but later on, towards the end of the first century, when uh, the apostle John wrote the book of Revelation... John describes the first day of the week as the Lord's day. It had become so common for Christians to meet on Sunday that it just became known as the Lord's day. And so the Lord's day is the common term used to describe Sunday, the day Christ rose from the dead, the day that the early church gathered together for corporate worship and the day that most Christian churches today gather together for corporate worship. But note, it is not commanded. It is not commanded. If we regard every day alike as Romans 15, five suggests, then that would mean we regard every day alike. Now, there is a command to gather together for corporate worship, but it doesn't say what day. The point being, though, is a lot of people then say, "Well, well, what about the rest part? Is it okay to work on Sunday? Well, Let's just talk about that Romans 15, 4. If you did regard every day alike, I mean, obviously you couldn't rest permanently and not work. So it'd be hard to say, but some people have the conviction that yes, I should set aside a day. I should rest. Rest is good. Um, trusting God to provide for me, you know, only working six days a week or five days a week is, is a good thing. And that is true. And there's principles there. But the thing you need to realize is you need to have your own conviction on this and that's fine. That's fine, but don't go judging other people for things that aren't commanded in the scriptures because they don't have the same conviction as you. And this leads us to our first point, and that is beware of legalism. Beware of legalism. Look at verses one and two again. 
As I read, um, see if you can pick out why the Pharisees had problems with Jesus. Now, it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on the Sabbath. and His disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees says, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, when I was in Israel, we just happened to be there at a time when the grain was ripe. And we walked through these fields and we picked some heads of grain and we did this. Blew out the chaff and we ate them. So, man, I've experienced this Israeli grain. I did it. Um, And uh, it wasn't that much work. I just want you to know. Uh, We did it. And uh, so that's what Jesus and his disciples are doing here. They're going through a field and they're having a snack. But, of course, the Jews, the Jewish leaders here are accusing him of something very serious. They're accusing him of desecrating or breaking the Sabbath. And you think, well, you know, I mean, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because this, because if Jesus sinned even one time, that means he's not God. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Savior. And he can't save you from your sins. So you're still dead in your trespasses and sins. And that is a huge deal. And so we've got these people accusing Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. And what they did is they interpreted this picking of grain and rubbing it together, blowing away the chaff and eating the grain seed as reaping and threshing and winnowing, kind of micro reaping, threshing and winnowing. And reaping was the process where you would get a curved knife, like a big sickle, a curved knife. You would grab a bunch of grain and you would hack it loose. You'd stack it in bundles. Then you'd take those bundles to the threshing floor where you'd lay it all down. Then they would pull, get an animal to pull a sled over the top of it, which would rub it together, break the grain loose from the the chaff. And then you would get uh, a big scoop and throw it up in the air. And these places were usually on windy hills. So when the wind would blow, it would blow the chaff out of the circle and the grain would fall down being heavier. And pretty soon you would have just nice clean grain. Reaping, threshing, and winnowing. And so that's what they're saying. You know what you guys are doing? You guys are reaping, you're threshing, you're winnowing. You're breaking the Sabbath. And all of these were implicitly forbidden in the fourth commandment and even explicitly forbidden in places like Exodus 34.21, which says this. It says, you are not to harvest on the Sabbath. Now, Notice how Jesus replies to this in verse three and four. And Jesus answered and said, have you not even read that? You know what? You just need to understand this. We're talking. Jesus is addressing expert fanatics in the law. Have you not read? I mean, that was that was an insult. Just so you know. Have you not read what us? We've got the whole thing memorized. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which it is not lawful for any to eat except the priest alone and gave it to his companions. Now, this story may not be familiar to you. And so I'll, familiarize you it was familiar to any jew this was early on book of first samuel what happened was is david was anointed king saul had the holy spirit taken from him and it was placed on david and god sent an evil spirit to torment saul who was now intent on murdering david David and his little band of faithful men were fugitives and they're running around trying to stay out of Saul's spear point. And they come to a city called Nob. Nob is a place where some of the the priests had gathered together. And that is where the tabernacle, the portable tent of meeting was, where the Holy of Holies and the holy place was and the the articles um, for temple worship were there. So David comes up and he and his men are famished. They're starving. And he comes up to the priest who is Ahimelech and says, hey, you know, I've got my guys here and we're really hungry. Could you give us something to eat? Well, you know, I mean, who has enough for a whole army to eat? 
And he just says, listen, uh, I don't have anything. The only thing that you could eat here is the bread of the presence, the showbread, which was put in the holy place by the priest, 12 large loaves of bread, uh, unleavened bread. They were like big stiff discs that were uh, made of 12 cups of flour each. And these discs were put there and regularly swapped out uh, by the by the priest. And then the priest would eat the older loaves and keep the fresh ones before the Lord as a memorial of his goodness and his bounty to Israel. And the law said that the, only the priest could eat it and they needed to make sure they were consecrated. That is, they hadn't they weren't unclean before they ate it. So David's hungry. His men are hungry. And so Ahimelech says, you guys, right before the Lord, I mean, you, you consecrated before the Lord. And they said, oh, yeah, here's the bread. And now the Pharisees are going, hmm, because David didn't incur any condemnation for that. So what was going on there? Jesus is teaching them something. He's teaching them something that we need to learn too. He's teaching them that the showbread's important. The law was legitimate. The regulation needed to be obeyed. But within the the law system of God, there are some laws which are higher than others. Remember what Jesus said? There are two great commands, love God and love your neighbor. And he said, on these two laws, hang what? All the law and the prophets that there are some things that are more important than maintaining a ceremonial ritual. And that is preserving life. These men were starving. They needed something to eat. And, you know, you could see Ahimelech saying, well, you know, why don't you just go ahead and starve? We'll keep these discs on that shiny gold table. I'm sure that's what the Lord would want. Now he goes, you know, in this situation, are you consecrated? Yes. Well, God doesn't have these pieces of bread here to not show mercy in a time of desperate need, to not help those (laughs) who are starving. Go ahead and eat the bread. That was fine. That was fine. Some people have said, no, 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 that's not the problem here. What's the problem is that that Ahimelech is setting aside the law. No, no, that's it. Other people said, no, no, no. Some people are saying, no, David, being the messianic forerunner, he was able to set aside the law and disobey it. No, no. The whole point is they didn't disobey. They did what was right. Ahimelech was right to show mercy and give them the bread because the bread of the presence was never intended to make men suffer and go hungry. I mean, they were there as a tribute to God's bounty and these guys are starving, you know, go give them the bounty. And they would be eaten anyways by the priest. So back to our text. So Jesus is going through and he says, have you not read? Don't you know this instance of David picking the grain heads is not any big deal. Don't you remember what David did when he was hungry? Now, some people said, no, that that wasn't their problem. Their problem was that he was stealing from whosoever field that was. Well, that's that's not what he was doing either. In Deuteronomy twenty three twenty five, it says this. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain then you may pluck the heads with your hand. But you shall not wield the sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. You know, if you're going through, you can can snack on your neighbor's grain field. Now, you can't go harvesting. You you can't get out the sickle and start, you know, well, you know, you got some nice grain here. You can only take a few bundles home. That is, that would be work and that would be stealing. But God had made a provision that you could actually do the very thing that Jesus was doing. It was a form of, of showing love to your neighbor. Snacking in your neighbor's grain field was permitted. You couldn't harvest his crop, but you could snack in his field. And that's what Jesus and the disciples were doing. But see, they defined these things as micro reaping, micro threshing and micro winnowing. 
which of course was not the case. They added their own convictions to the word of God and were more concerned that their conviction and their man-made traditions were upheld more than the word of God. That is legalism. Of course, after Jesus gives them this illustration, he says in verse five, and I just want you to know the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now we're going to come back to this and treat it separately. Look down at verse six and seven. Here's the other example. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. Obviously, they believed that healing on the Sabbath was wrong. Now, the Jews and and, uh, their writings of the rabbis say that if someone's life was at stake, then you could help them. But if it was a minor thing, you let them suffer until the next day. Now, was that in the Bible? No. They were following Jesus around on the Sabbath, waiting, hoping for Jesus to sin against God. Now, is that the loving thing to do? No. Is that like, you know, you can imagine, you know, me following you around, hoping you can sin so I can condemn you. What is that? And that's exactly what they were doing. Do you remember what Jesus said about the Sabbath? Was the Sabbath made for men or men for the Sabbath? The Sabbath was made for men. The Sabbath was made to be a blessing for men. Here, take a day off. Rest. I'll still provide for you. Worship me. Rest from all your labors. Remember when you were in Egypt and you worked seven days a week, 365 days a year? Well, I want you to know, I'm going to give you a rest. Every seventh day, you just chill out. Don't work. Worship me. Relax. Rest from your labors. And this will be good for you. Help you get vitalized and restored and ready to go back on it. It was a good thing. The Sabbath was to be a good thing. And here these guys are hoping maybe he'll heal somebody. Maybe he'll break the Sabbath and then we can accuse him. We can get him. We can turn everybody against him. And in that attitude, they were breaking the Sabbath. But Jesus knew exactly what they were trying to do. So he addresses their legalism head on. He calls the man forward. He looks the Pharisees in the face and asks if it's right to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm. Now the irony of it is, is Jesus wanted to do good and they were wanting to do Jesus what? Harm. I mean, what could they say? You know, any five-year-old would get this one right. Do good. Do good. I mean, is it good to do bad on the Sabbath? I mean, look at that. You know, Sabbath is for doing harm and killing. Notice the beginning of verse 10, the text says, and after looking around at them, he calls the man forward and he's in the synagogue. The Jewish leaders are watching. The Pharisees are watching. He asks them this question and then he gives them a little bit to answer it in their heads. And he looks around at them. And they're all looking at him and he's looking at them. So is it good to do good or harm on the Sabbath? And of course, they're all answering in their mind. Good. So he says out. With your hand, stretch out your hand. He heals the man. And this is the ultimate ninner, ninner in your face healing. (laughs) And the lesson you and I need to learn from this is beware of legalism. Beware of legalism. It is blinding. Some people are just, they're besides themselves wanting that their tradition be maintained. They have murder towards you in their heart. They're angry with you in their heart. But you know what? They don't have a verse of scripture to stand on. 
And a lot of Christians use this term legalism whenever, you know, they get convicted about their sin. If I'm up here preaching, I convict you about your sin. All of a sudden, I'm a legalist. People have accused me of legalist because I preach and I still preach and will preach that Christians have to obey God. But listen, legalism is not insisting that Christians have to obey God. Ephesians 2.10 says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. And if you look at Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14, it says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to do what? Deny ungodliness and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for Jesus to come back. And that God has created this people that he is saved by grace to be zealous for good deeds. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be saved unto good deeds. Paul put it this way at both the beginning and the end of the book of Romans. That he went out preaching the obedience of faith. Not the rebellion of faith. It's Christianity, basic Christianity, to know that Christians need to obey God. That is not legalism. Legalism, though, does come in three different kinds. And here they are. The first kind is this. There is a kind of legalism which says you have to be saved by works. That's legalism. That's legalism. Like the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 and Mark 10 and Luke 18 who asks Jesus, what good thing must I do to inherit the kingdom of God or to inherit eternal life? He is looking for works that he can do to earn favor with God. That is legalism. And you may think, oh, I pity the poor people who believe that. Well, you know what? A lot of people in Christian churches that teach the Bible believe that. And some people here believe that. I've talked to them. I know it. Many people sit in churches, they hear the gospel of grace week after week being preached, but it never seems to register within them. Their hearts are like granite and it just doesn't soak in. And somewhere along the line, they've been convinced by somebody or by themselves that they're Christians and they're saved. But you know what? When you talk to these people and you say, you know, tell me about your walk with the Lord. Tell me how you became a Christian, which is what I always say whenever I talk to anybody. Well, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian school. You know, I go to church fairly regularly. I try and read my Bible. I do good. I haven't murdered anybody. You know, I'm a fairly good person. I'm not perfect, you know, but I'm better than the average Joe. So that's how you know you're going to heaven. That's right. Well, I guess what? You're not. You're not going. You're a victim of legalism. You're trusting in your works to save you. Listen, if you're going to go to heaven, you're going to go to heaven for only one way. And that's because of Jesus and what he did for you, not what you did for him. That's exactly backwards. That's exactly what Satan wants you to do is trust in what you've done for Jesus. No, God needs to save you. God needs to transform you. God needs to cause you to be born again. God needs to make you into a new creature. God needs to change your heart. And then because you're saved, you obey out of love and devotion for the one who has saved you. And if you're sitting out there and you're realizing, you know, I, I just, I just realize I, I am trusting in my works. Well, then you just need to confess your sins. You need to receive Jesus Christ trusting in what he did to save you. He shed his blood. He took your sins upon himself on the cross. He died your death so that you, through faith in him, could receive his righteousness. He was your substitute. Just like in the Old Testament when the priests put their hands on the lamb and then killed the lamb. Well, Jesus, God put your sins on the lamb and killed the lamb. And that it is only through faith in him that you get to heaven. But legalism says, no, I know that's true. I know Jesus died on the cross for sins. I know he was buried. I know he rose again the third day, born of a virgin. You know, recite the whole creed. And then 
but I've been a good person and that's why I know I'm going. And so may God, by his grace right now, open your heart to see the miserable state you are in, if that is you, and that the reality is that hell, not heaven, awaits. Another form of legalism is dead orthodoxy. Dead orthodoxy is when people do what is right, what is biblical, and what is true, but from the wrong heart motive. Dead orthodoxy believes and obeys the creed, the confession, the traditions, but not out of love for Christ, not out of a desire to give him glory, but because it's the creed, it's the you know confession, it's the denomination I grew up in, it's what my parents taught me, it's what I've become familiar with, it's what I've learned to do, and this is what you do, and this is why I do it, and that's it. Yeah, but why do you do those things? Because this, I'm a such and such. Yeah, but why do you do it? Well, because it's right. Because the Bible said so. Yeah, but why? And they never say, because I love Christ. I just want to serve him. I love God and I want to give him glory. Isaiah described them in Isaiah 29, 13. Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Were they doing religious deeds? Yes. Were they going through the tradition? Yes. Were they doing all the right things eternally? Yes. According to the law of Moses? Yes. What was missing? No love for God. Going through the motions. Paul describes them in 2 Timothy 3, 5 as holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Jesus, remember, talked to the woman at the well about true worshipers that the Father seeks. He says the true worshiper is one who worships in spirit that is from the heart, and he worships in truth. Just being passionate, just being motivated, just being excited about the Lord is not enough. It must be according to truth. And just being truthful and being orthodox and according to the letter of the law is not enough. It must be from the heart. You must be in spirit and truth to have acceptable worship. Not one or the other. And so you need to ask yourself if you've fallen into dead orthodoxy. Have you fallen into debt or do you just come to church because, you know, that's what I do on Sunday. And hopefully by the time I get to the end, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. And God will say, hey, you did the right things. So you get to go to heaven. Is that you? Or listen, you know, I just go and I've been a Baptist. I've been an independent. I've been a Presbyterian. I've been a whatever. And this is what I was taught. So this is what I do because it's the right thing to do. And I know it's the right thing to do. And, and you know, during the week, you don't love God. You don't praise God. You don't thank God. You don't worship God. You're, you're just going through the motions. That's dead orthodoxy. That's another kind of legalism. Then there's a third kind of legalism. The third kind is the kind we find in the text before us. It is to elevate man-made rules, traditions, convictions to the same authority of Scripture or over the authority of Scripture. So what we find here. Jesus confronted the Pharisees about the very thing that they were accusing him of. You see, they were accusing him of breaking the Sabbath. Jesus wasn't breaking the Sabbath. They were breaking the Sabbath. They were the ones who wanted to murder him. They were the ones hoping he would sin. They were the ones who were doing harm to their neighbor. Not showing mercy or being willing that Jesus show mercy. They were sinning. Jesus was not. Jesus told them in Matthew 15, 3, a parallel text, you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions. Later on in verse 6 of Matthew 15, he says, you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your traditions. What they did is they established their traditions over the word of God, and that's bad. This is what is going on in the text before us. The Jews had added traditions, rules, regulations for the Sabbath day. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. You know, they want to have them and, you know, choose to do certain things. Fine. We have rules here. Fine. But when those rules usurp 
authority over the word of God and you start judging people as not being right or not being righteous before God because they don't believe in your traditions, your convictions, that is bad. That's legalism. And you encounter this in conservative churches. And I would say that the more conservative the church, the more you encounter this kind of legalism. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with traditions. But you need to make sure your traditions are kept separate from the mandates of God. There's something wrong when your traditions and convictions become the standard of righteousness. The standard of judging others is less holy than you because you were doing these certain things and they are not. Let me give you some examples. You have to have an altar call every Sunday. Or whether you have an altar or not. Women have to wear dresses which are two inches below the knee. Everybody knows it's three. You have to worship on Sunday. You have to give a tenth of your income. Smoking and drinking are sin. You have to have a choir. You have to have a Sunday school class. You have to have a youth ministry. And the sermon can only be 30 minutes. Listen, if you haven't struck oil after drilling for 30 minutes, shut down the rig. <laughs> and when you talk to these kind of legalists and you say, you know, I, you know, I think you're being legalistic. They'll tell you. Hey, 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 you know, the Bible says this and the Bible says that they pluck all these little verses out of context and kind of give you some general principles and try and confuse you into thinking that some principle applied to their certain conviction is actually a mandate from God when it's not. You can't smoke. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and everybody knows that smoking is bad for you, right? And it's sin, right? Really? Like eating sugar. Which is bad for you, right? Or artificial sweetener, which is bad for you. Or not getting enough sleep, which is bad for you. Or not exercising, which is bad for you. Or not wearing sunscreen, which is bad for you. Or not eating three meals a day with all the four food groups, which is bad for you. Or eating too much meat, or eating too much fat, or eating too much salt, or not eating enough fiber. Legalists are often so concerned about their particular conviction, tradition, that they sin against you and sin against others in an effort to try and maintain them. They go around griping and complaining and gossiping, and they're not showing love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control towards others. They're showing hostility. They're murdering people in their heart. They're doing exactly what these people did. So beware of legalism. Beware of legalism. You need to realize that these men here are condemning Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made to help men out. Jesus is trying to do good on the Sabbath. They're trying to kill him. They want this guy to suffer. They don't want him to be healed. They don't want to extend mercy. They don't want to extend love. They don't want to be kind. They want to be mean. They want to trap him. They want to kill. They've got murder in their hearts. And they're saying, you are breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus' whole point is, no, you are. You are. So beware of legalism. Are you trusting in your works to save you? Are you practicing dead orthodoxy? Are you elevating your personal convictions over the authority of scriptures and condemning others as not as righteous and godly as you because they aren't adhering to what you think should be done? Has your zeal for your personal convictions caused you not to show love to others? And if that describes you, you need to repent. You need to confess your sin. You need to get right with the Lord. Many church splits could have been prevented if people applied this. People, church splits happen over the dumbest things. The color of the carpet. Who cares? I mean, I like blue. (laughs) All right, this moves us to our next point. Jesus' shocking statement in the middle of these two examples And just so you know, Luke inserts the comment between these two instances. If you look at Matthew's gospel in Matthew 12, verses 5 through 8, we aren't going to go there. Jesus includes several other 
reasons that he was able to do this on the Sabbath. He reminds them that the priests profane the Sabbath by working every Sabbath day. They're laboring. They're carrying big bulls and lambs and lifting them up on the altar. They're working all day long. And Jesus not only says that, he says, I want you to know, not only did the priests work all day in the temple, but guess what? I'm greater than the temple. And then he lays the big one on him. And by the way, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And then he tells him this in Matthew 12, 7. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. You have not condemned the innocent. The purpose of the Sabbath was to help men so they could show compassion and love. And Jesus is showing compassion towards people. I mean, he's healing them. And they're trying to get him to stop doing what is good for others. And they themselves are breaking the Sabbath. In verse 8 of Matthew 12, um, as well as in Luke 6, 5, if you look there, he was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And this is his crown principle. And to them, this just would have been... You know, like jumping into a very cold pool of water. What? Who is Lord of the Sabbath? Yahweh, the great I am, is the one who instituted the Sabbath day. The Lord God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is saying, that's me. I am Lord of the Sabbath. And the whole point is this. Listen, if there's anybody who knows how to keep the Sabbath, it's the Lord of the Sabbath. Which means I'm right and you're wrong. I'm Lord and you're not. You need to be submitting to me. I don't submit to you. You are the servant. I am the master. That's his whole point. That's his whole point. And if you look in the New Testament, you will see Jesus described as not just Lord of the Sabbath, but Lord of all. Acts 10, 36, Romans 10, 12 for two examples. He is Lord of all, not just the Sabbath. The lessons the Pharisees needed to learn are the same lessons that you and I need to learn. Jesus is Lord of all. And because he is Lord, he needs to be submitted to. A lot of Christians have this eye, or at least professing Christians, have this idea that, you know, Jesus is just somebody who you just name and profess to believe in. But, you know, you don't have to obey him. You don't have to follow him. You don't have to do what he says. I mean, you know, he's just a good fire insurance policy. You know, you sign up, you get out of hell free, and you do what you want. No, 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 no. When Peter was preaching that the very inception of the church in Acts 2.36, he said this, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is not just the Savior and Messiah. He's Messiah. He's Lord and Christ. And being Lord, he has the right to tell his servants what to do. And they have the obligation to submit to him since he is Lord. Now, I'm not going to go into this in any more detail. Because this is just too great of a thing to hurry but we're going to get into detail when we get to verse 46. Look at verse 46 of chapter 6. This is just like a, a slow pitch ball. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And if you want to keep from getting scorched, don't come on that Sunday. <laughs> Jesus is Lord of all. Everybody needs to submit to him because he's Lord. He's the one who interprets what the Sabbath is and what the Sabbath isn't and how to break it and how not to break it. And he was right and they were wrong. Third final lesson that we need to learn from ministry is this. Be prepared to be opposed when you break with other people's man-made traditions. And you know what? This happens to me all the time. I get up here and I slay some sacred cows. The blood is everywhere. And those people let me know. Little unsigned letters. I get, how dare you? 
You know, and then they usually quote a verse out of context. You know, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. I want to write them back. Do you wear sunscreen every day? Salt, sugar, you know? Come on, let's, let's put the principle all the way. I mean, when you say you can't do anything that might be bad for your body, your body's dying. I want you to know you can eat really good and I can eat really bad and you're going to die, I'm going to die. That's it. Face it, you know? I was down at a place here and where they serve uh, very greasy chili and I, I, I was joking with the guy and I said, hey, uh, I said, is this chili on the Predican diet? And the guy says, listen, you're going to die anyway, so you might as well eat good. So I had a big bowl. Look at verse 11. Right after Jesus asked them if it is lawful to do good in the Sabbath and preserve life in the Sabbath. It's right after he looks at them in the face and then he heals the man while they're watching. Verse 11 says, but they themselves were filled with rage and disgust together what they might do to Jesus. What was their problem? Several things. Jesus exposed their legalism and they hated him for it. They, I mean, they're supposed to be the teachers. They're supposed to be the experts. They are supposed to have the attention of the people. They're going to be the instructors of the law. And now Jesus has humiliated them over and over again, showing that they're professing, they're professing to be Sabbath keepers, but in their heart, they're murdering him and they're not willing that this other man have mercy showed to him. They are breaking the Sabbath while they're accusing him of the very thing. And whenever you find a legalist and you expose their legalism, man, they hate you for it. They hate you for it. Their pride, their self-righteousness, their ego causes people to be filled with rage. What do you mean? We've always done it this way. Well, not anymore. Every church I've been to has had an altar call. I can't believe you don't have an altar call. We don't have an altar. Sorry. How will we call them there if there's no altar? Where does it say that in the Bible? Well, it's just right. Mm. How about your anger? Is that right? Let me ask you this. Are you reading your Bible faithfully? Are you praying faithfully? Let me ask you, do you have a ministry in this church? Are you serving anywhere? Well, no, no, no. So you're disobeying God and you're mad at me because I'm not keeping your tradition. Legalism. Watch out for it. I'm telling you, it sneaks up on you. It sneaks up on you. Now, they don't smoke, but they eat too much salt and sugar. They don't drink, but they don't read their Bible and serve in church. They demand that their three hymns of prayer on a 30-minute sermon, followed by an altar call, be the standard for every Sunday, but in their heart, they're murdering people. And what we learn from this is that people love their traditions, and it's okay. It's okay to love a tradition. It's okay to have traditions. It's good to have personal convictions, but not to set aside the word of God, not to sin. Now, I want you to know you're in the church, especially if you're in leadership, you start messing with people's tradition. Well, we've always had this Sunday school class and we've always had this thing this way and we've always done it this way. Well, you know, the elders have decided we're not going to do that anymore. Now you're sinning for the sake of your tradition. You just drop it and just say, hey, it's not a big deal. It's, it's not commanded in the word of God. It's just something I've become used to. It's okay if things change. So beware of legalism. Remember Jesus is Lord of all. Be prepared to be opposed if you happen to be in a position to break with tradition. Because people don't like to change. That's okay. You don't have to be mean to them. Just ask them. So where in the Bible does it talk about that? Hmm. A lot of times you will find they are very fuzzy about other applications of their thing. You know, they aren't going to do this, which harms their body, but they do 50 other things. 
but they want to hold you to this one. Don't follow them. Don't go there. It's not where it's at. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this text where we're able to see Jesus interacting with some men who have been deceived into thinking that their man-made traditions and definitions of the Sabbath were actually more important than actually loving their neighbor and doing what is right. Father, may we as a body here at Calvary Bible Church not fall into legalism, either dead orthodoxy or thinking we can be saved by our works or, or judging other people because they don't have our extra biblical convictions. Father, I pray that each person here would have traditions and would have convictions. But Father, they would keep them separate from the commands of your word and always let your word have sway over them. Father, if there are people here who don't know you, who maybe have been trapped in dead orthodoxy or thinking that their works are going to save them, that they need to do good deeds so that you will accept them in the end. Father, pull a mask off of their deception. And Father, soften their hearts and grant them repentance. Help them to run to Jesus and help them to receive him as their savior that they might be saved and transformed and born again and made into new creatures who want to obey you out of love and a desire to give you glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.